Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another bright day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Michelle Padron-Kitching. Michelle is a director at FutureWorks NY, an organisation based in Scarborough, North Yorkshire, which provides training, support and guidance for people of all ages, as well as volunteering opportunities within the local community. Michelle, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us today. Good morning. Thank you very much for having me. It's my pleasure uh, having you on the air with us, Michelle. Now, um, the purpose of this podcast is to really understand your take on leadership as a whole. So if we sort of dive straight in and look at that word leader in isolation for a moment, what does that word Mm -hmm. actually mean to you and how does it resonate? Oh, um, yeah, leader is, I think, someone um, who is um, quite open and honest and leads by example. I think that's how we like to do it at FutureWorks. Um, we, ha- we have a very small team and we, um, we work as a team. It's, it's never about us and them. It's about us all together. Um, so although we are leaders, um, you know, as directors, we, we like to be in the mix and we do lead very much by example. We're very open and honest with our staff um, and we like to be all-encompassing with our staff. So, um, yeah, that, that for us is how we, we run our organisation. And I think that's a very effective way of leading when it comes to taking people with you, doesn't it? Because openness and transparency, of course, two very important um, aspects of leadership, but also that sort of idea of an equal footing, that humility as a leader to show that you're willing to essentially roll your sleeves up and get involved in things that other staff members are getting involved in as well, leading by example. I think that's incredibly important because if you show that you are on that equal footing, it is far easier to get people to sort of buy into the collective vision and to take people with you which is incredibly important isn't it mm-hmm. yeah and it gives you know it gives a lot of motivation to staff as well um i think it's it's very important that our staff understand and um you know that they are listened to you know we we like to listen to our staff we like to listen to other leaders as well and we we do take on advice we take on other people's opinions and i think moving forward that's really important as an organization you know, although we are directors, we don't have all the answers. Mm. Um, we are human beings at the end of the day, and we, we don't know everything. Um, and I think it's really key, and it's really vital to listen to other people. And that might be our staff. Um, it might be other people that are looking in, other leaders, other organizations. And I think that's why, you know, we've been here for eight years, that we do actually listen to our staff. We listen to our young people, and we listen to other people as well. And I think that's key for motivating staff and keeping them involved in the organization keeping staff with you as you as you grow and as you develop there are a couple of important things to uh, to take away uh, from that uh, for sure and I think mm. one of them is the fact that as human beings which we ultimately are we are fallible yeah. even as leaders and that's something which has really 
hit home during this current period, hasn't it, of COVID-19? Absolutely. That self-awareness yeah. for sure, because people are looking to leaders for vital reassurance for a little bit of um, an answer as to what can be expected um, in the future and amid all of the mm-hmm. uncertainty. That provides a lot of pressure for today's leaders because they don't necessarily have all of the answers. Sometimes they might yeah. not even know that much more than those around them. So leaders mm-hmm. have had to, of course, really step up and provide that reassurance, keep the communication channels open um, off their own backs, of course. So that's um, hugely um, important um, on the uh, the one hand uh, for certain. Um, I'm interested to understand, uh, Michelle, how you have found the last few weeks and months sort of navigating the uh, the current COVID-19 pandemic, because the other aspect, the other important aspect um, that you touched on there was people mm. management um, and knowing how to, of course, motivate people. Um, mm. That's been incredibly important during this time because you're managing a series yeah. of personalities, not just in terms of staff members, but the people that you work with, some of whom will, mm-hmm. of course, have been willing to continue working and others that have maybe needed a little bit more encouragement and a little bit more sort of understanding yeah i mean we we are very lucky lucky at future works we do have an amazing um team we you know we do have really dedicated staff um and i think in the you know in the field that we're in helping young people and helping unemployed adults that's really key um i think throughout this pandemic it has been difficult it's been difficult for everybody um and we've just been we've just been open and honest as we you know we always are We've kept communication links open. Um, we've been in touch with staff on a daily, weekly basis. Um, it's not all been about work. We've um, we've had um, staff meetings where we just we catch up over a coffee, over Zoom, and we just make sure that we're all okay. Um, I think our staff know that if they need to phone us or if they need to contact us, we are always available. And it's just, you know, again, it's not always about work. It's how are you coping at home, um, mentally, physically. And if a member of staff has needed just to have that 10-minute conversation, you know, I'm having a bad day, those links are open. And they have been throughout the whole pandemic. You know, with everybody, we've had good days and bad days. Our staff have had good days and bad days. The businesses had bad days and good days. Um, but we've always been, you know, really open and we've kept communication open. And we've just been honest. You know, we didn't have all the answers. We still don't have all the answers. We take each day as it comes. We take each week as it comes. And if anything changes or if anything needs to change, then we just communicate that as effectively as we can with our staff. And so far, which what it seems to be working. And that's really encouraging to uh, to hear as well, uh, Michelle. Now, because we touched um, earlier on about the importance of openness and transparency within leadership, mm-hmm. I just wanted to touch on the fact that there's been a great deal of debate about that when it comes to the government's leadership of the uh, the COVID-19 crisis, especially yeah. with the sort of blurred lines around guidance that people seem to think yeah. are there. Um, I was wondering um, from your point of view as to whether you thought throughout that you were very aware of what was expected of you and you are continuing to be aware of what's expected as we look to the new normal and what sort of is required from COVID secure guidelines as people begin to return to work and lockdown mm. restrictions continue to ease? Yeah, I think, you know, we obviously we have to we have to keep um, aware of what's going out there. We have to keep aware of the guidance, you know, as leaders um, and, you know, as human beings, we have family, you know, we have to do what we have to do. Um, I think, yes, I think we've been kept up to date with guidance um there is lots of information out there um 
think you have to look at what you have to do for you as your family and for you or for your organisation. You know, we've put steps in place for our organisation. Um, we've and we're happy with with what we have to do. And I think we are confident with what we have to do and what we've been told and the guidance that we've been given. So for me and for us, it's been it's been very clear. This is what we have to do. Um, the guidance has changed, and we we expect that. You know, it, this is unprecedented for everybody. Um, not everybody has the answers, but we know that you know we have to be adaptable. We have to be flexible. And we go with the guidance that we've been given. So on a whole, I think we've been quite happy with the guidance that we've, we've had. Mm. And that's incredibly um, encouraging to uh, to hear as mm. well, because there's been a great deal of uh, debate um, about that. But it's good to see that that sort of clarity is filtered through uh, quite nicely. Um, yeah. And of course, you've been involved uh, with FutureWorks uh, now for eight years, uh, Michelle, in a yeah. uh, director role. Um, you've also now had the experience of managing a crisis such as this. So if, we, if you were to channel that sort of experience and maybe give some advice to somebody who was about to embark on a leadership role for the first time, what sort of advice would you give? them um i think you've got to be adaptable you've got you know every day changes every day is not the same and that's you know in normal living if we can call it normal living or in a crisis like we that we're going through at this moment in time and i think a key thing is that you're not on your own i know we've heard that a lot over the last few weeks but you know i have a co-director we bounce things off each other but also we bounce things off our staff as well and I think you've got to, you can't do this by yourself. You've, you've got to be a collective. You've got to kind of support each other um, throughout crisis, throughout normal day. Um, and I think that's the key to being successful. You can't do these things by yourself. You've got to have a network of support and you've got to have that transparency. Um, you know, like I said earlier, we don't know everything and, you know, if you pretend to do, then you're going to fall and you're going to fail. Um, I think you've got to be willing to to have other people around you to help. I think that's incredibly important, isn't it? Knowing that as a leader, yeah. you're not alone. Ultimately, you can look to others for guidance and assistance. That's um, really, really important to it to take yeah, on board absolutely. for sure. And. Um, as well as that, um, Michelle, um, what I'm interested to understand um, in terms of the uh, the future is what you envision for yourself and for your future work. So, um, some of the mm-hmm. ways that you've adapted to um, the current COVID nineteen pandemic. Do you expect that to uh, persist within the organisation and persist with your working practices? And what do you most importantly hope to achieve over the uh, the next twelve months as we move hopefully out of the other side of COVID nineteen and look to a future under the new normal? Yeah, I think for us, I think we're we're going to be we're going to see a rise in young people accessing our services. We work with um, young people that have got lots of issues, including mental health issues, and I think those have probably been um, exacerbated over the last few weeks. Um, we've continued to work with young people remotely, and we have seen a rise in anxieties, isolation, um, depression, um, and I think for us, it's it's putting steps in place to support that ongoing. Um, so, you know, we've done it remotely. We are now coming out of this and we are um, getting back into the office, working safely. But also we now, to, we now need to get our young people back out as well, again, safely. So it's lots of one-to-ones. And for us, it's keeping that support going for our young people and keeping the, the funding going so that we're here because young people, you know, they tend to come out worse 
in times like these. There's not going to be lots of jobs out there for our young people. We work in Scarborough. There's lots of um, seasonal jobs that our young people tend to go for. Um, they might not be here this year. So we've got a lot of work to keep these young people motivated, keep them supported, and you know get them ready for the positive that's coming in the next six to 12 months when this is you know, hopefully behind us. So for us, it's keeping going, keeping busy, and making sure that our young people know that we're here to support them and that the funders know that we're here still doing our work. And it's some incredible work that FutureWorks has uh, been involved in um, over the uh, the last few years, uh, Michelle, for sure. And um, I think it would actually be incredibly um, informative having you back on the programme at some point over the uh, the next year, just to see how yeah. the organisation's adapting to providing those services as things continue to change under this new normal. Because, of course, we can speculate um, all day about uh, what it could bring, but it's a different thing entirely yeah. being able to look back and actually assess what's happened within the year, uh, the time between. I think not just for myself, but also from a listener's perspective, I think that would be really, mm-hmm. really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, see what comes within the next six, 12 months. It's a shame that we can't, of course, uh, talk more about it uh, today because I'm sure we could talk long into the afternoon about um, exactly that. Um, but we are just about out of time on the uh, the programme today, unfortunately. But it's been a real pleasure, Michelle, having you uh, join us on the air. So thank you ever so much once again for taking the time to thank join you. us. Um, and most importantly, until we do touch base in future, do take care and do stay safe with all still going on because we're still not out of the woods with this yet, for sure. Absolutely, yeah. Thank you very much. That was Michelle Padron-Kitching speaking, director at FutureWorks NY. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and also the chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Um, Despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett rose to prominence to become one of the most notable politicians of his generation, holding various senior positions in the Cabinet of Prime Minister Tony. Blair and serving as the MP for his Sheffield Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015, anointed Baron Blanket of Brightside and Hillsborough. And I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with him. That is coming up next. Lord Blanket, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, declined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is 
that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cyber security side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity 
to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, We may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore 
to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. 
uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would people criticize the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, but very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, 
I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much 
if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from '97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have 
some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, Sakir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, 
but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.